0: Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Darwin's Journey. But before we jump into that, we do have some poll results to discuss. Every week on social media, I ask a poll, and we would love for you to engage with us on that poll. So this week I asked the question, have you ever opened a new copy of a board game to find out that there were components missing or misprinted? The first option I gave was yes, and I made do. And that was 19.2% answer that way. Yes and got replacements was 53%. And no was 27.8%. So more than half of uh, board gamers who listen to our show have received a game that had broken or missing components in it so it was pretty interesting and that was the main reason i asked this question is because it happened to me this week i just picked up revive which is a game we reviewed a couple weeks ago i really loved it and one of my local game stores had a copy so i took it off the shelf and it wasn't that there were components missing but one of the punch boards was printed really far offset, in a way that some of the components were almost unusable. It was those little upgrade tokens you slot into the uh, the player board where you put the cards in there. And it was very hard to tell what the icon was and what colors were printed on them. So I reached out to Matigo, who I think is the distributor for the game. At least that's what the Porta website said to, to send a request to. So I put in a request for a replacement punch board. So I haven't received it yet. I'm hoping I do get it. I think the game was playable without it. There'll just be a few that'll be hard to read. But have you guys ever run into this? Ever received a game that had bad components?
1: Well, so did they contact you, Tim? Are they sending you new stuff or have you heard from it? So far, they haven't, but
0: it's just been a few days. So I'll give them, you know, I'll give them a little time.
1: Yeah. Well, interesting. I put no on the survey, Tim, but hearing you talk about that reminded me of a couple instances where I did have a little weirdness. I bought Patchwork, the great game by Uwe Rosenberg, where half the fun of that is slotting these these I don't tetromino polyomino pieces next to each other and again and like you had tim these were all kind of miscut so there'd be like a fat side and a skinny side and the pieces wouldn't quite fit together perfectly on that quilt that you're trying to make so that was so frustrating i wrote to them and they immediately sent back brand new pieces so i can make my quilt so i can make my patch and I was grateful because that it is, it's all the fun in that game is having those things fit together so nicely on your quilt that you're making. And then another Madigo one, Kimmit Blood and Sand, and none of the components themselves, but one of the trays for holding all these tiles was a little, I don't know if it was cooked off. So it looks like when you put something too hot onto styrofoam and it kind of melts with these weird looking holes through. So I don't know if they got too hot in production or something like that, but there's a couple little holes. doesn't affect gameplay at all, but just a weird little funkiness. And then I think Dinosaur Island had a smashed box when I got it. So that's not components. But yeah, some of this stuff happens in manufacturing and shipping. And most companies that I've reached out to have had no problem sending me replacements. Fantasy Flight has been good. I lost a Star Wars Rebellion dice in my dad's apartment one time. And I wrote them. They sent a whole new set of dice. So a lot of times if you do lose components, you reach out to companies and they'll
2: hook you up. I'm glad you guys have had a really nice experience with that. I mean that's just it's really good to hear. I'm like Adam, I am put in the the survey no, but then sitting here, I remembered one and it's actually to me kind of a charming one because it's one of the first board games that I ever bought which was Blood Rage and it was the weirdest misprint where of all the pieces you've got these ships that have the little sail on them. And it's a mini and they're all in different colors. The one I'm thinking about is the clan of the bear. So it's the brown ones. And there's this one sail that's purple. So <laughs> the brown sail is actually purple and it falls out. And so all these other ones are perfectly fine. They're in great shape. The, the sails are the right color. They stay in their ships just like a Viking ship sail ought to except for the bear ship which has a purple sail that falls out. And honestly, I don't mind. I think Tim's actually commented to me before that part of the charm of the game is that I know I had this one little weird piece and it doesn't affect anything. So I haven't bothered to replace it or do anything with it other than just kind of chuckle at it and enjoy the fact that it's an
0: odd little fun misprint.
2: And that's the only one I can think of.
0: Adam, you mentioned that you had a good experience with Fantasy Flight, but Fantasy Flight was one of the companies that's been bought by Asmodee, correct? I think that's right. I don't know. Okay, I think they are, and I know Asmodee had kind of stirred up, um, you know, a little bit of trouble a couple of years ago when they announced that they were no longer going to replace components. Instead, they say, if you have a missing component, then you bring the game back to where you purchased it, which may be okay. But if you think about the trouble of like returning to a small retailer and them having to return it to Asmodee, or did you buy it from somebody else, you know, or did you, you know, did you buy it online from some store that you may not be able to send it back to easily? So I think that that For the biggest companies, maybe that's going in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. And I I remember doing this Rebellion Dice was right during that whole thing. And I went to their website, clicked around a couple of times, got the little email and the, the service number or whatever. And it was, I don't know, two weeks later, I had a brand new set of dice. So... It worked out just great. Yeah. So I haven't tried it since then. But
0: Well, it's good to see. I And I, I read all the responses. I'm not going to read them here because almost every response was somebody saying, yeah, this happened to me, but the company just replaced the component for me. So it seems like for the most part, board game publishers do a great job of this. I had two more instances. One was when I got one of the Orleone expansions and one of the punch boards was misprinted. And TMG at the time, who is out of business now, but they they sent me a punch board right away. I probably put them out of business by asking for. I'm sorry, TMG. <laughs> and then the other one was uh, my Viticulture copy I got from Stonemeyer Games, and this was a fairly new edition, and it had kind of that nice, like textured rule book that uh, like Tapestry has in it. So they must have replaced that recently. But it was weird because it was like every other page was in Polish. I think. Like, I knew how to play the game, but I was like, if I want to reference something, so I feel like that'll be a mess. So they sent me a replacement copy right away, but it was clearly like an older edition of the rulebook that had just kind of the flat paper on it. Uh, So, you know, just sad little miss on that one, but, but you know, totally usable. So anyway, nice nice that publishers do this. I'm sure it's a lot of work for them to send replacements. I was... Going to mention, though, Chris, I sent, I gave you Votes for Women, which Fort Circle Games sent us as a review copy. And one of the things I I didn't call out when I talked about that on the show is that they sent like two of every wooden component extra. Like every wooden component that's in the box, there's like two extra ones in there. In a lot of ways, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, it probably costs them an extra 15 cents per box, but think about what it saves them from people complaining about a broken you know, component or a missing component or something mm-hmm. that just got mispacked in the box. So yeah. I wonder that there'd be an interesting discussion with Fort Circle about whether that's been effective for them in eliminating returns or, or requests for replacements. All right, cool. Well, that will wrap up this conversation. Let's jump into a description of Darwin's journey. In Darwin's journey, one to four players are participants
2: in Charles Darwin's famous journey through the Galapagos Islands that eventually led to his theory of evolution that ultimately changed science in our understanding of the world. The rules suggest that this game is about Darwin recalling the wonders of his journey, though there's a bit of a thematic disconnect in that they never quite explain who exactly the players are portraying or why they're competing. However, I imagine us as assistants to Darwin competing to be, I don't know, the most helpful? Anyway, for now, let's just go with it. The action in Darwin's journey spans the globe ranging from the Galapagos, represented by a map on the main shared board, to the museums back in Darwin's home in Europe. Each player also has an individual player map with which to capture workers' abilities, individual goals and accomplishments, and players' individual specimen collections. Now, let me give you a little bit more description of the main board, since that's going to help with your understanding of the conversation coming up. At the bottom lies a ship track, on which Darwin's trusty ship, the HMS Beagle, progresses as the game moves along. This is also where the player's individual ships move from island to island, and branching off from the ship track are separate tracks for the three islands that players will explore. As one might expect, once a ship reaches a particular island, that player can drop off some of their workers on the island to do a little exploring, which often results in big benefits such as collecting invaluable samples, setting up camps that provide additional actions, and helping players progress along the Theory of Evolution track, which will provide the lion's share of the endgame points. The main board also has two other major areas. One's the museum, where players can ship specimens from their journey for study, resources, and points. In the other is the journal section, which provides a number of worker placement spaces that players will use to carry out the majority of their actions. The game is broken into a series of five rounds, each with multiple steps, but the vast majority of what happens in this game takes place during the aptly named action phase. During the action phase, players will move their workers to various spots in the journals or museum to take a variety of actions such as exploring, navigating, or studying. In one clever twist, most worker placement spaces have a skill prerequisite and each worker has a unique skill set. If a player wants to use a worker for a particular action, they have to make sure their worker has the right skills, and they can build up those skill sets by taking study actions. At the end of each round, the HMS Beagle will move another space along the ship track, and when it reaches the end after the fifth round, the game will end and final points will be tallied, and the player with the most points will be the winner. Darwin's Journey was designed by Simone Luciani and Nestore Mangone, and is published by ThunderGrift Games.
0: All right, so let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms. This was the first play for all three of us today. So for first time going through Darwin's journey, Adam, what do you think about the gameplay here?
1: Well, the you mentioned it, Kristen in the description. It's primarily a worker placement game, but the twist here is those workers have to have skills, and those skills are represented by wax seals, like you might use to enclose an old-fashioned parchment that you're sending from... I don't know, you're king to the Pope or some such thing. So imagine, you know, these little seals, you're putting those next to your workers and that kind of gives them like, I don't know, like the tags and Terraforming Mars or prerequisites that they're going to need to go out to these spaces in order to take those actions. So that skill building at least was something interesting, a little bit of a twist on worker placement that this game had going on.
2: I really like that. And it's it's not that unique to have a requirement of certain workers going to certain spaces. I mean, you've got that in games like anachrony where you, you're, your engineer goes to certain spaces and your scientist goes to another space. So it's not that unusual of a mechanism. But what I like that they did here was that these workers ended up becoming trainable or customizable. So these wax seals, different ones did different things and you could assign them to different workers. So if you took a study action at the university, you could get those those wax seals. And then those, that ended up meaning a lot of things in a lot of different parts of the game. So for example, those wax seals let you take certain actions, they let you take better benefits from certain actions, they let you play these crew cards down the road, once you accumulated a bunch of these wax seals, and the crew cards gave these really powerful benefits. So there were all these different things that came out of using these wax seals that I thought just really added an element of fun to this one that was really cool. Actually, one other thing I'll add on it that I really liked was once you maxed out the seals on a particular worker, then they became like a super worker. And then they could do extra, extra, extra things when they went out and took turns. And I just found that so rewarding. It wasn't until the end of the game that I was actually able to do it. But once I did it just felt like joyous every time I got to take an action with my super worker. So I, I really like that part too, Adam. Tim, what did, what did what did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that was the root of what differentiates this from other worker placement games because that was what this is. It's a worker placement game, um, and and that was a great part of it. It was very fun. It was very interesting. It was interesting that the way that you upgraded your workers, it wasn't about like adding components to them like some games do, or it wasn't about like using a different color worker. It was just you represented on the player board, and you whatever worker you picked up from that space on the player board gave you different benefits. So it, it was very clean. It was. It was a very smart way to do the design on here, and I think it worked really well. Let's talk about some of the actions. I think the root of this theme here, right, is, is Darwin's journey. You're, you're traveling around, you're moving the HMS Beagle around these different islands of the Galapagos, and then you're kind of adventuring around and discovering stuff on the islands. And so, two of the worker placement actions that you could take uh, one of them was to move your boat on this kind of ocean track. And you had two reasons to do that. One, it got you closer to other islands where you could put other adventurers out. And then the other is that you wanted to keep up with the Beagle because the closer you are to the Beagle ship that was moving every round, the more end game scoring points you could get. So that was pretty interesting. The other though was the adventure action where you're actually moving your workers out onto these islands and everyone starts on one Island. But if you move your boat far enough, you can get onto other islands and move them around. And, This is, I think it's pretty cool because basically what you're talking about here is Euro tracks. You're moving up a couple tracks, but they made it thematic because they printed these, you know, these islands on the board and you're, you're moving around these different paths on the islands. And it was fun that as you moved around these islands, there were a bunch of bonuses printed and you're basically jumping over them if you don't want to stop there. But then the one you get to is usually a pretty fun, exciting thing. And most importantly, it's how you're discovering new species out here. And that's, a core piece of points in this game, if you can discover species, you can send them to the museum later on and get a lot of points from get these uh, theory of evolution track points that are going to be a multiplier at the end of the game, um, as well as they can give you money early in the game. So I think that that was a very overlooked piece by Adam and I, where we did very little exploration and picked up these things and sold them to the museum and cost us the game, I think. I mean, we did a little bit of it, but I think it's a, I think it's something you're going to have to do in this game to be successful at it. I
1: agree, Tim. That was one of the things I was looking forward to doing the most, but I was unable to do it. I felt like I was the fourth player in this game. And by the time it got to me, I didn't have enough money to take any spots that let me do that. I couldn't do the little Johnny Walker space that got me going around and got me some um, some movement on the Island. Chris already had the species. So he was already, I think he already took where it was going first, already took that action to deliver it, that initial species to the museum. And the one thing I wanted to do during the game that I thought would give me the most points, the little evolution books and get me down the evolution track, the scoring multiplier that Chris said is like ended up being, I don't know, 50% of in-game scoring, 60% of in-game scoring. So that to me looked like the clear strategy, the clear way to go, this game, and I was just, I felt handcuffed right from the beginning because of my player position, and that was just infuriating. Honestly, I didn't know which was going to be the best way to go,
2: but I decided I'm going to double down on something, and hopefully that's going to be a winning plan, and I ended up doubling down on exploration, which ended up being actually being a pretty good way to go. You know, you go out into the island, and you get all these different spaces. I want to talk a little bit more about how those specimens and the islands interact with the museum because that's really where so much of the point uh, scoring in this game comes from. So when you find a specimen, usually it's going to be on the island, but there's a couple of other ways you can do it too. But you take it into your specimen set. And once it's in your specimen set, then you can take an action that delivers those specimens to the museum back in England. Once you get the specimen back to England, it goes into this grid. And basically, you get everything in the column in the row that's exposed when you put that specimen in there. At the beginning of the game, it's almost all dollars or pounds or whatever is money. And so one of the things that happened for me early on in the game was everybody was short of money. But I put one specimen in there and it got me like $8, which is huge in this game. Later on, as the specimen spaces start filling up, instead of having dollars, now you're getting these other specimens in those rows and columns that have books. And the books are what gets you movement along the theory of evolution track. And like, the, like you guys said, that is where a huge amount of that scoring is going to come from. Because ultimately, wherever you end up along that track, that's going to be a multiplier that goes along with how many completed rows and columns you have in the, the board. And so for us, that was like six. And so if you were at space 10, that was going to get you 60 points. If you were at space 15, it was going to get you, I can't do the math in my head, but it's going to get you a lot more points. And if you were at space 20, that's going to get you 120 points. So there were these ridiculous score bonuses that you got from moving along that track. And really the primary way to do that was by getting out on the islands and getting those specimens and getting them turned in. You know,
0: Adam mentioned being a little frustrated by player order, and there's a pretty easy mechanism here to switch player order. Of course, it uses up one of your four actions in the turn, but you can go to a space, be the first player in the next round and get two coins for it. So not a super exciting action, but player order is really impactful here. And the reason why when, you know, someone else started taking that exploration movement and then Adam wanted to go there is that aside from having these unique workers that are kind of able to go to different spaces, there's also a cost to use a a section of the board that someone else has gone to. And we didn't really get into that, but I think this game really did do tight worker placement in a really great way. The best way that worker placement works is when there really is a tough choice. Like if I go here, then that's probably the best thing I can do this turn because somebody else is going to take the next best space. And this game is like that. You're mostly not blocked off, except that every time you go to a space that somebody else is a, a region of the board, someone else is going to pay two more coins for it. And money's pretty tight here. So it, it really is tough if you're not in first place or if you just don't like you want to take two specific actions in a round, you might only get one of them for free. The other one's going to cost you and you might get the weaker version of it because someone else can block you out of others. So really uh, tight worker placement here means turnward does matter. But there is a way to mitigate that a little bit.
1: Yeah, that was, that was another thing that it didn't seem too novel to me. Not, I guess not that much about this game it was too novel, except I thought the having those tags for the worker placement. But that was just another thing that was, you know, it felt like every other Euro game. Oh, I got to pay more for this worker placement spot because there's somebody already in that spot. So I'm gonna do that again. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I feel like this game was what Tim loves about board games. And it's kind of what I am beginning to despise about board games is uh, I had this find the (laughs) combo element, like, oh, look at this, I have $5, so I can move to this space that costs three, and I can pay this extra two to this one more thing, and that's gonna let me find this combo and check it out, guys. Now I got three more things I can do on my turn. This is fantastic. So if you're into finding the combo, this had a lot of that going on too. So the find find the combo-iness is a mechanism. How do you guys feel about Find the Combo? It's something that's not super great for me anymore. It's not a puzzle that my brain wants to go and seek out. I feel
0: like Tim really wants to answer this one. So I love Find the Combo, right? I love that in games. I did terrible at this game. I did nothing right tonight. Like Chris and Steve were taking so many huge actions, doing this, filling an objective, doing this thing. And and I wasn't, I don't, I want to go back and try it again because I really enjoy that. But my question for you, Adam, is that you're talking about what you don't like in games. But for a Euro game, this had an area control mechanism. Why don't you tell us how you felt about that? Because that seems like it should be right up your alley.
1: Oh, if you're talking about the letters home, the stamps, the stamps. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, again, it's, uh, they tried to throw this in there too. Let's add just a little bit of area control to try to make Adam happy in Darwin's journey. <laughs> I thought this failed miserably too. It's like a, you know, a pity area. It's not real area control. You're putting some stamps out on these things and you might be able to win yourself a little bonus at the end of the round. And then once you do, if you're in first place, or second place you turn in half your stamps back to the pile and you can try to do that next time not really worth any points not really worth very much for anything it's just another little side dish thrown in here to a tapas style <laughs> menu tapas is great of mechanisms here in this game so
2: i have to admit when when tim suggested that that area control part of the, the i'm going to say that with air quotes area control part of the game might satisfy Adam, I wasn't sure he was serious, and I guess I I was right. But I mean, I, I do kind of agree with you, Adam. That was not really area control. But honestly, in this case, I actually felt like I liked it a little bit better because it felt a little bit less aggressive. Which also meant, of course, there's a little bit less intense player interaction. You know, you could share the benefit if there was people were tied, and so it was it was a pretty minor thing. But I do disagree with what you said about you know a little action. Some of them were pretty big actions. I mean, moving your ship two spaces was one of the benefits that's pretty huge. I mean, that's, that's not a small, that's a whole other term in a normal round. So I thought that the benefits were actually pretty good and I thought it was very useful, but it wasn't that exciting in and of itself. It was part of a strategy that I thought you might find a way to use those in an effective manner. Uh, but I'm going to take a turn here and talk about something a little bit different because there were also, and you mentioned this, but there were goals in this game, which of course is nothing special. I mean, goals are, you know, the most common thing in board games, personal goals. But in this game, there were so many of them and they added to the combo aspect of the game because when you got, you, ha- you were able to get goals out of a special like goal spot, I don't know what it was called, but you could go and you could pick up goals. And then if you make those goals, then you got to place them on this board where you had, I think it was 10 spaces where you could place goals and each one had some benefit to it. And it might get you a specimen or it might let you recreate the benefit of a camping spot. And those in turn could then create a new benefit and a new action potentially. So you could almost get three or four actions out of any given action. And one of the ways you could do that was with these goals. And there was also the number of goals that you completed at at one point in our game, at least based on the scoring goals that we had was how many goals do you get at the end? Do you have in play at the end of the round? So I actually really liked that. I thought there was a lot of variety. I thought they had uh, exciting benefits associated with them. And I thought that was another very nicely done part of this game.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree. I love when games give you objectives, and I love when the games are unique, variable per gameplay, but also can vary throughout the course of the game. And this does it great. Like there were the Beagle goals that score at the end of each round. And this is kind of like barrage scoring. You know, each round there's a sp- specific scoring goal. It's gonna be unique every game. So like it might be like six points for every one of this type of specimen you've collected or or three points for every objective you've collected. So that's cool, except if your boat isn't kept up, you're going to get penalty for how far back behind the beagle you are. So that was fun. It was some potentially big points there, but you got to get that boat track moving. On the other hand, there were these personal objectives. Everyone starts with two, It's a dr- with a draft at the beginning of the game. By the way, I love starting game drafts. Here you draft your 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 cards as well as your goals that was fun but these objectives that you could fill get bonuses for them and then pick up more objectives and so it was like again i did terrible edit this game but i can't wait to try it again it's it's one of these ones where you're you're constantly going for these little things that are going to change you don't know what they are the next round but you hope to pick another one up that's going to fit something you're already headed towards or gives you a new objective to work towards. Aside from that, you had the goals on your uh, crew members, which are three cards you draft at the beginning of the game. And if you can basically create enough seals on some of your workers to meet the conditions, then you get some pretty powerful benefits on those. So it felt like the game really gave you direction, but a variety. You had places to work. I just kept, I just completely ignored them most of the game, which to my detriment wasn't good, but I like that. I thought it was really fun.
1: So yeah, Tim, you're, you're touching on something, there's a lot of mechanisms going on here. And to me, they never quite blended together. They all felt, felt a little disparate. Like I couldn't tie in together with my guy, research on the island and how I could grab a combo there to fit it in with another objective, which would let me place this thing and do this thing and do this thing. I don't know if it was just the display here and how things were laid out, but I had a real problem connecting, right? For a combo-y combo sort of game, I had a real problem trying to tie in the things together and associate this with the consequences it was gonna have, or the you know, the the fall on effects, how that would let me tie into this. Whereas revive that we just played, I don't know, last week or two weeks ago, that one felt so much easier. Oh, I can see if I put this here, I can see the direct result, that's gonna give me this thing. I can put this lightning bolt over here. I get these little guys. So something about this game just tracking how these combos are gonna cascade was really difficult for me. And that's, I'm sure that's something that'll come with more plays. But I had a real problem for a game that wants you to do combos seeing how those combos were going to come together.
2: I can completely understand what you mean there, Adam. I think I had a different conclusion about what that meant for the game, but I do agree with what you're saying, as I actually love that. And I think one of the differences that I found between revive in this game, where I actually did see some common you know, DNA was that the combos seemed less complex in revive, but they also seemed slightly less powerful to me. And, and maybe that's a side one is a side effect of the other, because in this game, you had to go pretty deep on some of these spots thinking through this might lead to this might lead to this. Because, like, for example, if you moved on one of the islands, you might have three or four different spots that you could choose to land on. And maybe one of them was points. Maybe one of them was the ability to put out one of those waxed uh, seals on your character. And maybe one of them was the ability to land a campsite. But maybe once you get that wax seal, that's going to give you some benefit that's in addition to the one, You know, basically it's going to give you a whole other turn based on and you really had to look down the line at each of the potential actions. And I found myself sometimes going, having a complete action planned out and then be like, oh crap, no, if I do this other thing, then I'm going to have this other, it's like dominoes falling. I'm going to have these dominoes are going to fall over here. Yeah. And it got a little bit hard to follow sometimes. But I think the side effect of that was that when you did get one going, it felt so good. It was so satisfying and it really did feel like dominoes falling, like this thing leads to that thing leads to that thing. And I I just found it incredibly satisfying. I imagine if I wasn't able to put together some of those turns, which is a distinct possibility, I would have been incredibly frustrated by it. So I hear what you're saying.
0: I never put together any of those turns and still found it exciting to explore and can't wait to go back to it but let's talk about that for a second because chris you mentioned how you planned out a turn a long turn and then realized there's another opportunity you've got on this other path right what does that typically mean that typically means analysis paralysis long turns long gameplay but i got to talk about one of the big highlights of this game and that is that for a very heavy worker placement euro game this was very fast for us. We talk about this all the time on the show. We play slow, like we'll play a mid game for three hours. Last week, we played Heat for two hours, which is a very light midweight g- game with pretty simple mechanisms. And we played a four-player game of this tonight, first play in two and a half hours. And that might seem long to some people, but let me tell you with this group, that is very quick for a game of this weight. So I actually think that that was a nice part about it. The game was over before. I couldn't even believe we were in the fifth round already when it happened. So it goes really quick. No, this is is an element of it just being a worker placement game where everybody places four workers and you're done. But to me, it felt like it went quick. I was excited about my turn coming up. Adam's smirking at me over here because he clearly did not feel the same way.
1: Well, one man's quick is another man's excruciatingly (laughs)
0: long.
1: I, I felt like... I knew what I was gonna do on my pathetic turn, so I would bust that out right away and be done with it. And then, Tim, well, you were pretty quick, and then, but, I don't know, I say that, but then there was a lot of, um, I don't know, Steve especially tonight, maybe Chris a little bit. Well, well, I could do, no, I'm not gonna do that. Let me think about this other thing. Uh, I'm Nope, that move sucks.
0: That's because they actually had stuff to do. Like, Unlike us. We, we were so far behind doing nothing. Well, when you're <laughs> planning epic turns, I mean, you have to take an epic pause. <laughs>
1: maybe that's that's fair that's fair so you say it was quick tim but again for me it felt like i went down and i made a cup of tea and i grabbed like a couple snacks and i had a conversation (laughs) with sarah and then i came back up and chris is still like well like i don't know i could do the contract here but i don't know if i want to do that so maybe i'll place this guy (laughs) up here instead i'm like jeez
0: come on adam i gotta ask you though because when you walked into this game tonight you did not expect to enjoy it right and so does that make a difference for whether you want to sit there and think about your turn? Or are you ready to move on from the start? I'm sure it does. I've had just as
1: many games where I'm like, I I am not going to enjoy this. And then I, I come out, uh, Revive, for instance, and it's spectacular. So this game, yeah, it's the, just cats out of the bag. I did not enjoy it at all. But Revive... revive same thing. I was like, I don't want to, this game's going to be boring. That's going to be, you know, nothing new about it. Nothing exciting, nothing novel. Revive blew me out of the water. And this game, this is the second Darwin game that I've played that is just a bust. And it didn't do it for me. I was hoping that something would in the gameplay, you know, shine and excel. This little pathetic area <laughs> control, stamp control part of the game didn't help out. The player interaction. How does this game, okay, what sets this part game apart from... Barrage. What sets this game apart from Revive? Why are you going to play this game over any other midweight Euro game? Tim, I know you love Tyletem. I know you love. Uh, what's the other? Italian designer one with the columns and the Brains, cards. Yeah. There's so many other games yeah. by these designers. What puts this one? What sets this one apart? Why are you going to pick this one over those,
2: any of those other ones? Let me just comment that that is a weird question because that's like <laughs> saying what's the difference between Breaking Bad and Bambi? I mean, they're both great. You
0: know, it's like they are been entirely different things. I know. I, I I completely get Adam's point here and I think what makes this not stand apart is that it is straight up worker placement and it, in, a, in a way that has been done many times. I mean, it's got some clever things but there are also games that take a proven formula and improve on it and i think darwin's journey actually did that i think it actually took straight up conditional worker placement things that anacrity has done before things that taiwan suyu's done and made it into a pretty successful type package for me Um, and i like all the things that are going on about it so would i choose this over all these other games if it's another worker placement game And I'll get to this in my final thoughts, because I I have some very big thoughts about another worker placement game in this world. Is this Barrage? No, Barrage does tight worker placement great, but it has a very unique puzzle in the middle of the board. Darwin's Journey doesn't do what Barrage does. It doesn't do something as unique as Barrage does. And I 100% agree with that. But that said, like I said, sometimes you can have a game that feels like a lot of other things, but still does it better. And uh, I'll I'll get to where I fall on that. but, But that's kind of you know, that's kind of the thing, Adam. I, I agree. It This is not breaking any new ground here. This is a this is a game that's doing something that's been done a lot of times
2: before. Yeah, but so few games that we play actually do break new ground. And some of them are really fun. A lot of them are really fun. And I just do feel like this is just such a different game than Barrage, for example, which I love. I, I am completely infatuated with Barrage. But Barrage is a very heavy interaction, mean take that kind of game in a lot of ways. Kind of like the stamps in this game, right? Kind of like the stamps. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I like the stamps. (laughs) I'm going to stamp you, (laughs) sucker. Yeah, I mean, this is not that game, but it also does things like the islands, which are essentially a technology track almost. Yeah. But there was a real heavy reliance on those, which Barrage doesn't really have. And so, There was just a combination of things that were put together in an elegant way that I thought was a lot of fun. But I also feel like there's a lot of games that just the way they put things together along with a theme, along with the mechanisms, and it creates a certain magic. And I won't. Well, I. I won't say whether this game has that magic or not
0: because we're not <laughs> at final thoughts yet. But we'll get there soon. I, I think this might be our longest ever gameplay and mechanisms discussion on a game so far because there's a lot going on here. But why don't we move on? And, and if there's anything else you guys want to bring up, we can bring it into final thoughts. Let's jump Let's jump in and talk about the theme and production of Darwin's Journey.
1: So, yeah, we've been hitting at it all night. It's a Darwin's Journey through the Galapagos or some sort of s- helper or research assistant or something like that. So the theme, I love this theme. I love hearing about Darwin and the finches and all the different evolution that occurred on isolated sections of the globe where these species have a chance to specialize and there's competition you see all these crazy things happen. There's not much of that like specialization or any of that. So it's just, you know, it's generic stuff. Darwin's involved. There's some animals and stuff and you're just collecting those and put them on. So they try to put a theme on here and then there's a boat going along too. So you know, it has the the seeds of a theme, has some magnifying glasses that you unlock some. So it doesn't quite gel as far as integrating. I do enjoy this theme a lot more than any other you know, farming and, and cow breeding and this and that. But as far as it gelling with the gameplay, I that really did not come across again at all for me.
2: I'm going to agree with that in part and disagree with that in part. In terms of the actual production, it was fine. I mean, the art was decent. It was a pleasant board to look at. At no point did I find myself thinking, "Ugh, this is unpleasant. I do think that the theme actually integrated pretty well with the mechanisms. And just for example, the boat track. I mean, the boat's making a trip from one end of the board to the other end of the board. That's the time counter. It also gives you the opportunity to explore islands as you move. And the island exploration I thought was personally, to me, the highlight of the game. I thought that was really well done. And then there was the idea of sending the samples, the specimens, back to Europe for the museum. I thought that, you know, all those little pieces, the, the correspondence and even, even the now much maligned stamps, I thought that all factored in, in a way that it kind of put me into the story. And, I mean, that's not super heavy theme mechanism integration, but I thought it was very pleasant. The only thing really that just leaves me scratching my head that I don't get – it really is that question I alluded to in the game description, which is what's going on here? You've got the beagle kind of going out there ahead and everybody else is kind of trailing along like a bunch of little puppies, you know, doing their research. And like, are we just trying to show off the Darwin that we're the best helper? I it just that I tried not to think about that too much, because in the end, I think
0: it didn't do much for or against the game, but it just didn't quite. I didn't get it. Yeah, that worked fine for me because that's exactly what I pictured is that we're just kind of ass- we're kind of like assistants that are, you know, Darwin's like, yeah, I'll, I'll pay it. To- not you guys go out and do this little project, and if you're successful at it, then maybe you'll get a promotion or something like that. And I thought that all worked fine. It was fun chasing after that beagle thinking that, like, hey, if we can just keep up with Darwin, we we'll get on his radar <laughs> and he'll he'll recognize us a little bit more. Um, and but I pretty much 100 percent agree with you, Chris. The production does nothing unique here, nothing exciting. Um, You know, it's made to look like a bland, you know, 1820s notebooks and stuff like that. I didn't care for the graphic design of the different styles of magnifying glasses, which are supposed to differentiate the types Mm. of worker placement spaces. It works, but it was not super, you know, it wasn't intuitive to say like, hey, this one I have to pay extra coins for, this one I don't. Yes, it's in the rules. Yes, it's clear if you think about it. But, um, you know, that just wasn't super intuitive. The one thing I thought was missing from a graphic design perspective here is that there's just a few steps you have to take at the end of the um, end of the round. And I thought that could have just been on a it's probably on a player aid maybe in the box. I don't know, but it wasn't printed on the board. Just a few steps. And so I had to keep going back to the rule book after every round and be like, let's do this step first, then this step, then this step. So maybe there's a player aid that we just didn't see in this game. But I think that would have been really helpful. But I liked the theme here. I liked that, hey, I'm going to go and send more letters for donors and get some benefit. But wait, Adam just actually, he reached out and sent even more letters and got them inspired. And so now he's going to get a better benefit. But, oh. You know they heard from me, so they're going to give me a little nice thing on the side. Like that was a cool theme: walking around this island and discovering these species, and being like, two people can discover it, but who is the first one to ship it out to the museum and and get paid for it? The next, they don't need that species again; they've already got it. So you're not going to get paid for that one again. So. I thought the theme was really well handled here for what is a worker placement game. I enjoyed I enjoyed the theme in this, but yeah, the production didn't really stand out. And, and that's pretty much all I have to say about the theme in production.
1: Yeah, just my two cents on production, there was some good and some bad and bland mostly, but I think there was an upgraded one you're mentioning, Tim, yeah. where the- Yeah, it
0: was a Kickstarter version.
1: The Kickstarter version has these very, it looks like tactile, uh, the seals that you use to upgrade your workers look nice. And then you got the metal coins and the, so yeah, upgraded components are available. Those look like they're nice to touch. At least there's
0: that. At least there's that. Yeah, if you reach inside a bag and pull into a bunch of little rubber. (laughs) Sounds very pleasant to me. I mean, I don't know. That's cool. I would, yeah, if I got this, I would be happy to have the Kickstarter version of it. But I, you know, I think it's probably not going to change your game, your experience super a lot here. Yeah,
1: it's not going to change metal coins. And this. so the usual gambit of upgrades here, but nothing mind blowing.
0: All right, well, let's start off on a low note and talk about would you request to play this game again?
1: (laughs) Well, Tim, you have guessed it. I would not request to play this again. To me, it doesn't do anything to set it apart from any other midway Euro that exists out there in the world. This is taking a beeline towards that 6-7 rating on BoardGameGeek. It's not a horrible game. It's it, it's not broken. It doesn't do anything bad. But it's annoying when I know there's other Euro games that we all like that do it more engaging, that have that are more fun. It'll give you a better, like I don't know, give me at least a better sense of enjoyment. Um, and this game... It's just becoming less and less my style. So I attribute it to me and who I am and what I look for in board games. Not to say that there's anything fundamentally wrong with this board game. It just didn't work well for me. So I'll take a pass on Darwin's journey. It's not you, Darwin. It's me. Yeah. (laughs) Now,
2: I went into this game a bit of a skeptic. And this was my pick. I chose this game because it's something that looked interesting to me, the theme I liked. And... I'm a big fan of Simone Luciani as a designer. And so I was really interested to try a a new game. But I'm also not a slavish fan of Simone Luciani. He has some failures, in my opinion, as well. And every time he works with another designer, there's also, of course, the interplay of two designers. So I was curious to see you know, how he and his design partner were going to, you know, come up with some what they were gonna come up with here. But I've had situations where I was happy with the results. And I've had situ- situations where I was unhappy with the results. In this one, after sitting through a rules video, I was pretty confident that I was going to be just dumped on by how heavy this game would be, how long it would take. I mean, I was pretty confident we were gonna be sitting here at midnight tonight, still playing this game. And I was astonished. At how quickly this game moved along. And I was blown away by how much fun I had. I enjoyed this game from beginning to end. The turns moved quickly. The bonuses and the combos that you were able to put together, hopefully, we're able to put together, <laughs> were pretty epic and did some really exciting things. I loved moving around those tracks and getting the, the island benefits. I liked shipping things off to the museum basically I found almost every worker placement spot in this game to have something interesting and fun to do at it. And some of them gave you multiple opportunities to do fun things by triggering something else that could happen and create additional benefit. And so I agree that there's nothing groundbreaking, nothing earth shattering here, but the way this was done, it was just done so well and it combined some things in a way that I really enjoyed. So I thought this game was absolutely delightful and I would love to play this game again. So absolutely, yes, I will be requesting to play this game again in the future.
0: I will probably also request it, but I'm not going to buy it. And the reason I'm not going to buy it is because I have enough worker placement games in my collection. And if I wanted a heavy worker placement game, this would be one of my top choices. But I have Anachrony. And so Anachrony already does this. And I've just and i got enough other midweight worker placement games that I don't need another one. But that said, I think this you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's not doing anything super unique, but I think it's culminating some great mechanisms and making them shine. One of the things that's key here is that it's a heavy game. I think I could teach this game in five to 10 minutes because it's using principles. It's using mechanisms that we've done before. And there's something positive to be said about that. Like you don't have to make something unique that makes you have to teach a completely new mindset and a new, you know, skill set. Every time you play, uh, teach a game And so by just bringing someone in and saying, hey, you've played worker placement before. This works the same, except here are the differences. That's kind of refreshing. It's kind of nice to go in and be able to do that easily. And when the game comes together in such a nice tight package like this did for me, I think it's exceptional. I think the fact that the the playtime for a fairly heavy game went this quickly was another plus for it. And beyond that, the theme is just fun. So I really like Darwin's journey. I could see it maybe replacing something else in my collection at some point, but probably not. It doesn't need to be there, but I would love to see if one of my friends picks this up local and. You know, we get it out once once or twice a year. This would be awesome. If this, if Chris picked this up and this showed up at BGHTCON, I'd love to play this again. And uh, Adam can just, uh, you know, he can moan and, and complain about it the whole time. Um, I really like this game. I hope I get, a, get some more plays in it. So I would definitely recommend this. If you want a, a heavier worker placement game in your collection and you don't have one right now, go buy this one. This is a great example of that. Uh, but if you've already got a lot of work replacement, it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything too unique for you. So I would say Darwin's journey is a, a good hit for me, just not super exciting from a from a newness or freshness perspective. All right, we're gonna be talking about some games that are on our table as well as a Darwin's journey theme cocktail right after this. Welcome back. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I'm back from a little hiatus
2: on the game night drinks, as you guys have probably noticed, but I've got a fun one for you tonight. And before I get into the drink, I did want to give a quick shout out to our listener whose username, and I apologize in advance, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Brian is a beaver, or something like that, on Apple Podcasts, who left a very lovely review and mentioned the cocktail segments. Uh, That was a reminder to me about how long it's been since I did one, and I appreciated that. So thanks, Brian, and I am dedicating this one to you. So on to the drink. There's a lot happening in Darwin's journey, but one thing that stands out to me, as in the true story of Darwin's travels, is the HMS Beagle, which was the Royal Navy's 10-gun Cherokee-class brig sloop that carried Darwin on the historic journey. Now, is it just me, or is that like the coolest name there's ever been for a Navy fighting vessel? I mean, I can't even think of anything less imposing or frightening than a beagle, which makes it so charming that they'd use that name for a warship, right? So it turns out that the Royal Navy actually has a long history of naming ships after animals and um, dog breeds in particular. So you might be surprised to find out that there wasn't just one, but eight vessels over the course of history that had been named the HMS Beagle over the years. And the most recent was a bulldog, ha ha ha, class hydrographic survey ship that was launched in 1967 and served her majesty all the way up until 2002. So pretty crazy, right? Anyway, this all got me thinking about what Beagle-themed cocktails might be out there. And that led me to the Regal Beagle, which is a great drink and has an awesome name. I was surprised at how varied the recipes are for this drink, actually, though the ones I focused on came from theeducatedbarfly.com and homedrinkmenu.com, both of which had whiskey-based versions of this drink, and both were sours, one with Amaro for flavor and the other with peach liqueur, and both are delicious, and I use those because I'm a big fan of whiskey, so having a whiskey-based drink was a lot of fun. In another fun naval fact, both of these recipes involve lime juice, which would have been a staple aboard the HMS Beagle, likely, in Darwin's day. Those Royal Navy ships often carried limes or lime juice to help sailors fend off the effects of scurvy. And that, my friends, is how British sailors of the period got the nickname Limeys. That's fantastic, Chris. That's very cool. Yeah, no, I know. I love I loved that fact. So, so for your game of Darwin's journey, don't forget your Regal Beagle. You might not win the game, but... At least you're not going to have to worry about getting scurvy.
0: That's fascinating facts, and um, I always figured that the HMS Beagle it was because probably Snoopy was aboard, but I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to mind. He was the most famous <laughs> Beagle I know.
2: Of. <laughs> 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 All right, well,
0: <laughs> Adam, what's been on your uh, table this week? What have you been playing? Well, from Beagles,
1: we're to ducks. We're going to move on to. I played a game called Abduction. That's duction, D-U-C-K-T-I-O-N. The designers here are Evan Katz and Josh Roberts. The publishing company is Evan and Josh's very special games company, (laughs) which I thought was fantastic. (laughs) That's amazing. A little bit about the theme here. You are interns working for an intergalactic corporation that specializes in, of course, abducting ducks from their natural environment out there in the galaxy and bringing them in to do some research on them for, I don't know what exactly. But this is something that needs to get done. First of all, I want to thank Sarah for finding this one. She had it pushed to her on some like Instagram ad or something, and she thought it looked adorable. So she bought it. I was looking at it. I was like, what is this game, Sarah? I've even heard of this thing. Got a bunch of wacky, well, actually beautiful ducks that you're drawing out of this UFO. I'm going to show it to you guys. Um, Here's the UFO. It has this little slit top on the top. You reach in. You hear that? That's the ducks there. And then you're pulling out these ducks. Look at this. Look at how cute these little guys are. Oh, my goodness.
0: Okay, I 100% – I saw pictures of this, and I 100% expected those to be like little rubber duckies. But the ducks are plastic.
1: They're resin. They're like little resin plastic pieces. So they're hard, and the UFO is soft, which
0: is completely opposite of what I expected.
1: Yeah, and just listen to that sound right there. That's fantastic. So it's easy to – Draw these ducks out. It's in the rule book that ducks are very safe and very comfortable in here. No ducks are harmed during the research. They're all returned to their natural environment after the research is done. I wanna show you some more of these cards before I go and get into the gameplay. Look at this, this has like a, a reflective, metallic-y, almost a foil finish on it.
0: What? Is that the card? It's not like a cover, that's the card itself?
1: That's the card back. Here is one of the cards. Oh my
0: gosh, that's insane.
1: So I'm showing these guys the cards. It has a this foily metallic finish on them. This is the four different types of duck. You can see the colors getting some reflection, but represented by a different metal foil for different colors of ducks that you're going to be collecting. So the production is absolutely off the charts, like insanely good. So that was blowing me away right away. So what you're doing in this game, let me get to that a little bit. Each person has this very simple player board. It has 10 quantum ponds you fill that up right away with ducks from the ufo and you're trying to create these patterns of ducks from these cars that i was showing you guys with the metal um, kind of foil little picture on there so that's a top row and a bottom row of five each and they flow in this pattern from beginning to end so the bottom left is end and they file in from the top so like a queue, and they're going to kind of flow down almost in like a a bust a move or one of those games we're getting the gems in a row, right? So you get the gems out and then the other ones will cascade in and fill in the slot. Mm-hmm. So say you accomplish this one here, Orion's belt, and you have every other spot is the same color duck. You pull those three ducks off and then the other ducks cascade in, they fill in the spots. You draw three more ducks and those go in at the end of your pond. Well, how are you going to organize these ducks on your quantum ponds uh, to get them in the right pattern? Well, you got these action cards. Each turn you draw three, of these potential action cards you can do and you do what they say. So one of them is as easy as swap two ducks that are next to each other. And look at how cute these freaking ducks are on these cards. (laughs) And that's vertically or horizontally next to each other. You can just swap two ducks. There's the body snatcher card. You just pull three ducks off of your quantum pond, any three ducks you want. And then you, those don't shift. This is the only one where they don't shift down and you pull three ducks out of the UFO and you can put those in anywhere to feel so, The cards, these action cards are all similar to that. There's these spatial reasoning. There's one that's, um, you get four ducks that are in a square pattern. You can orbit them. You can rotate them around. And so each turn you have three cards and you get familiar with them very quickly. There's, I don't know, maybe 10 different of these action cards, the way you can manipulate your ducks on your quantum pawns to put them in these different patterns that are worth different points. And once you fulfill a pattern or use all three of your cards or decide to pass, that's the end of your turn. And then on to the next player's turn. Um, once you complete one of these cards, they're funny. They all have like a boss, your unpaid interns, right? So at the bottom, there's supervisor notes, and they're all these fantastic, sort of passive aggressive things a supervisor might say to a young intern. Uh, here's one. Did you get my voicemail? I left you a couple of pointers that should help you out. <laughs> so slight, <laughs> slightly aggravating. There's one that's like, be honest. What do you think of my mustache? <laughs> um, so <laughs> so slightly insecure middle manager trying to, you know, sort of harass the intern. There's stuff about um, this one's great. You're going to need a pair to catch this one. <laughs> ha, don't tell HR I said that. Um, so poking fun <laughs> at bad bosses, which who hasn't had? Who can't relate to that? There's interaction in this game. There is. So on a first, we played it twice with Sarah. So it's a two players played it twice with Sarah. At first it was like, what? I don't know any game like this where you're trying to move these things, have this kind of spatial puzzle that you're trying to figure out. So we were just blown away trying to figure it out at first. How are we going to do this? And then on a second play, you could see some of these tactical moves. There's a black hole that sucks all colored ducks from everybody's board in the game. So Sarah had like five pink ducks on her quantum pawns. I had one if I would have used that black hole. Her pink ducks are gone. By the way, having five ducks of any one color on your quantum pond is amazing and it helps you fulfill a lot of these higher point scoring little formation cards. So that would have been a strategic move, a little tactical, haha, take these ducks away and they go back in the UFO. She still gets to draw five new ones on her turn and try to do her three actions to get it done. But there is some nice interaction here. not too mean, just enough to set back so you can jump in and get that formation first. If you guys don't get the point here, I was absolutely blown away from a game that was nowhere near, it was light years off my radar, and I had so much fun playing this wacky game about ducks and UFOs. What a treat. What a fantastic surprise. This is abduction. There's an expansion we haven't even tapped into yet that has these glittery green ducks. How fantastic is that? And those are like wild ducks. That can be any color. And then there's these little other, I don't know, quantum pads, whatever they're called. And you can kind of attach those around the exterior of your quantum ponds in sort of a smartphone ink type of uh, tablet extender mechanism. These ones just go off your pond. And then there's these even more difficult patterns to try to achieve that those little extra additions will help you fulfill I can't wait to show you guys this game. You guys are probably going to hate it. It actually sounds like a lot of
2: fun, Adam, although I'm curious. I mean, you know, the the theme and the production, all this looks like straight up kid game. But the way you're describing the play of this game, it does not sound like that at all. Like, what's your take on that?
1: It is not a kid. That's, the weight right now is 1.8 on board game. That's after like 60 ratings or something like that. Mm-hmm. I th- put this much higher than that there's an element. So the second game, you got into the element of, oh shoot, I can, I'm seeing how these three cards are going to, I can do this in the right order to get the pattern I want. But also how can I remove a duck, have this cascade down, have that, get this pattern that I want, and then maybe start setting up for one of the patterns on my next turn already. There's a very like think ahead mechanism here. There's the spatial reasoning that is not super intuitive. I haven't had a game make me think this hard in a pleasant way about a spatial orientation kind of reasoning geometry kind of way. You know, it wasn't too much. Like Curious Cargo got me really confused about all these pipes going this way and that and these things going different. So the puzzle here is by no means simple. It was grindy and pleasant in a way that no other game has done for me, if that makes any sense.
0: After you posted, and then Sarah posted about this on Twitter today, and I'd never heard of it, and I was like, what is this craziness? And then I ran across a Facebook group post today about somebody saying they just got it. So they must have gotten their Kickstarter delivery at the same time. But they compared it to Calico. They said it is a Hmm. much heavier brain burn than you're expecting, which that's a positive to me, like I hear that. but Adam, how was the AP in this game? did you were you sitting there for a long time thinking through your turn where, where you know is this a game where it it looks and feels like a light game, but then is it gonna go too long or do you feel like that wasn't a problem? It's a great
1: question, Tim. my first play of this one I was it, like I said, it's like a game I've never had to work through or a puzzle I've never really done. So on a first play, you're looking at the card, you're trying to interpret what they mean. And it makes sense. You read it through once or twice and you're like, okay, that's what this means. And how's that going to work? But then you start putting the piece together. I could feel my brain making neural connections as this was going on. Okay, Mm so I'm looking at this pattern card. Well, there's five ducks there of the same color. So do I even have five of the same color on my board? Nope, I can't do that one. Well, here's like a reflection. So like top three ducks have to match bottom three ducks as if they were refle- oh i can maybe do that i have three of the same color on the top and bottom so how can so your brain starts to figure this out rather quickly and then you can feel it accelerating on a second play it it really sped up so it it really educated my brain as i went from first play to second play so yeah tim on that first play the ap the game took 45 minutes something like that uh, maybe a touch longer and that's with me and sarah learning the rules and getting it going But on the second play, we're down to like 30 minutes already. And I think on subsequent plays, it's going to get quicker and quicker and goofier. And there's going to be, you know, prevent her from doing this. And she's going to prevent me from doing that while accomplishing her goal. So it's going to be a good back and forth, an incredibly solid game here for from what I was expecting.
0: Okay, Adam, I got one final question here. And this is an important question. And that is, um, first of all, Sarah, if you're listening, I want you to step away for a second. Fast forward two minutes like you can't listen to this part of the show. Adam, Sarah's not listening right now. I know you're excited that she's enthusiastic about the hobby, that she backed her first game on Kickstarter. How do you really feel about this game? Is it Even with Sarah not listening, is it still a game that you're excited about that you want to go back to and play again?
1: I was such a punk. When she showed me this game, she's like, look at this game, Adam. I was like, what? I've never even heard of this freak. I immediately went and looked it up and I looked at the forums and there was people that are like, I've never even heard anything back from the publishers. They're not sending updates. They're not doing this and that. I was like, Sarah, is this game even real? It's probably just a scam. I was such a jerk about it. Then it got here and she, you know, I was like, well, let's take a look at it. Maybe it's fun. Let's open it up and have a gander at it. I was super skeptical. The more we played this, the more I was like, Sarah, this is a really great game. I can't believe how good this game is. I've never heard of this publisher. I've never heard of this company abduction it's just going to be another Valhalla Llamas where it features puns <laughs> and the gameplay is not even that good but I'm telling you they nailed the puns they nailed everything about this game it's an in- just incredible surprise you have to go look it up and it's going for everything you can get the base game for 35 bucks you can get everything for 55 bucks how could you pass up on sparkly green wild ducks again pleasantly surprised and amazed by this one adam did you really just say let's take a gander at this one"? Oh my gosh
0: <laughs> that was i
1: wish i had smart enough to do that on purpose chris but
0: i did all right folks you heard it here first abduction a big hit darwin's journey not so hot i'm telling you guys <laughs> all right well that's that's really cool and really interesting that definitely came out of left field it did maybe flew in flew in from the south out of left field. Okay. I don't know. i'll move on <laughs> the game I had on my table this week was Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island. Uh, this was designed by Ignati Trevichak and Joanna Kajanka and is published by Portal Games. This is a game that was published back in 2012. And it's been kind of on my grail list of games I wanted to try. Uh, just, I liked the, the, uh, the concept of the theme and I just heard it was one of these games where you're going out there. It's resource management. And you just are trying to survive in this thing. So I didn't know what to expect. I didn't really know what the mechanisms were at all. But because this is a co-op game, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because, you know, I'm not generally a big fan of co-ops, but a few of the co-ops that have worked for me have been resource management, like Euro style games. I've generally liked those more than your typical like story based or, you know, just disaster mitigation, dice rolling, you know, flip card type of games. So even though i knew it was a co-op game i was still interested in checking it out and i had some time last weekend i reached out to a friend and he was like yeah i want to get together but he's like when i play two player i prefer to do co-op games i was like oh great here we go i brought cthulhu death may die which was he'd never played it before and it was a fun experience for me as it always is and he really got excited about it enjoyed it and i felt like i had to justify my going all in on this big Kickstarter. Cthulhu, death may die that you know season three and four lately so i was like i gotta get some more plays of my my current content in so that went well and then he asked what i wanted to play and i was like you know i've always wanted to try robinson crusoe so he brought it over he's like i'm so glad he picked it because it's one of my favorite games so robinson crusoe is a disaster mitigation game the concept is that you have just you're robinson crusoe you've just you know, landed on a deserted island, except it's not deserted, right? There are indigenous folks there. And the the game is basically set up like scenarios. So every scenario comes printed on this card. It has certain rules about the game, like how many rounds does it play? What are your objectives for the game? What are some of the starting equipment you can start with and things like that? Uh, And the starter scenario is that you are trying to collect enough wood to start a big fire by the like 10th to 12th round when a boat is going to be passing by. And over the first you know, six rounds of this game, it's worker placement. Every both players have two discs they're going to place and you can either take two different actions or you can go a little less risky and you can place both your discs on a single action. And so there's a little bit of push your luck in it. And like, hey, if I if I go and do this action, I've got to roll dice and, you know, my my odds are going to increase if I put two discs there. So there's a lot of risk in it. But basically, you start in this spot on an island. You got to explore out to the island, which is going to help you discover animals that you might be able to hunt, but also potentially disasters that could happen. Um, You're going to find resources that you can gather. You're going to have to set up a tent and then create shelter because as the game goes on, the disasters get worse. Like by the sixth round, you're starting to roll these weather dice at the end of the round where rain's going to happen. If you don't have enough protection, enough cover, then bad things are going to happen. You're going to lose resources. If you, you know, you could also roll a snow die, which is going to start to cost you food if you can't provide for that or or firewood. And then there's going to be animal attacks that are going to start to happen. And so the animal attacks are going to go after you. So you have to also start to create weapons. You're going to do this through a number of ways. Basically, there are four basic worker placement type of actions you're going to do. There's a build action where you're going to be able to either build inventions and every scenario kind of lays out different inventions you can build by collecting different resources. There is a gather action, which is kind of like resource production. There is a explore action where you're going to move around this island and reveal a new hex tile that's going to get you more stuff. And then there's a hunt action. And once you've explored a certain tiles and animals are discovered, you put them in this pile of cards. When you do a hunt, you're going to flip that card over and it's going to require a certain amount of weapon strength, but it's going to also attack you back. So you have to have enough protection and then you, you'll you get different resources where you might get food or whatever. And of course there's a feeding mechanism because it's a Euro game. So at the end of every round, you have to feed your people. And if you don't feed your people, bad things happen. This game was brutal. It was punishing. It felt like everything that could go wrong was going to go wrong in this game. There's also an event card that happens at the beginning of every round that some negative thing happens. And if you don't solve it by the end of two rounds, then even worse things happen. But they also give you another worker placement space that you can spend resources and get rid of it. So you're having to deal with that while just barely surviving and trying to collect enough food and barely building up enough shelter to deal with the weather and at the same time you got to collect this extra wood so you can build up this bonfire for when the ship passes by i really like the game here's my problem though okay with with co-ops in general and this one specifically and that is that a co-op game doesn't allow me to think through and plan my own strategy i've got two workers we were playing two player my partner has two workers And it doesn't matter who places workers anywhere. But for some reason, we have to work together and decide, well, I think you should place a worker there and I should place two workers here. But wait a second, if you place two workers there, then that could cause this thing. Okay, you're right. Why don't you do what you're saying? Because it just always makes me feel bad that if I make the wrong choice, I feel worse than if I'd just done it to myself. And if they tell me what to do, then I'm disappointed that I didn't get the agency of actually making the decision on the game. And so this one, I think, worse than some of the other Euro-style co-op games that I've played, uh, it just made me feel like, why are we doing this two players? This would be better playing it solo. I thought this game would have been great as a competitive game. Get two people out there having to deal with these things and who survives the longest is the one who wins the game. That would have been super fun to me. And unfortunately, he said there isn't a competitive scenario in this game, but I think it would have worked great as a competitive game. I didn't like cooperating. And that's mainly why I don't like co-op games in the first place. I didn't like cooperating and making these decisions together. There's no hidden information. One person could just quarterback the whole thing. If you're not letting them quarterback and you make a bad decision, then you just feel bad about it. So it just generally, this is the type of co-op game that that makes me not like co-ops, but it's a type of game that was really fun. It was really challenging. It was really exciting to be like, okay, there's a chance that we're going to roll a hunt, you know, like a, an animal die. It's going to attack us. But if we go and build up a bigger weapon, we're not going to have enough food to feed our people and that's going to be bad. So let's take this chance and hope we get the right thing that happened. And I liked all of those parts of it. I just didn't like the co- the cooperative part of it. So Robinson Crusoe Adventures on a Cursed Island was a semi hit for me and that I thought it was mechanically very cool. It told a great story. It had great tension in it. I just wish I'd played it by myself. So That
1: was going to be my question, Tim. Would you go back and play this one solo?
0: Yeah, I I would. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go out and hunt it out, search it out. I think it's a, a shown its age a little bit. Like it is very basic work replacement stuff, and I think a lot of what this is done is doing has been done in better ways in, in like competitive games. And so there are competitive games that I could play solo that I probably will have a better experience in. But it's a great game. I mean, I would be happy to play it again, and it, I prefer to play it solo. Uh, But since I'm probably not going to hunt it out, that's probably not going to happen. I was told uh, that, you know, the scenario I explained is pretty basic and gave you a, a simple thing. But apparently there's like 12 scenarios in the base box and some really unique ones of things like finding King Kong on the island. And so that it's more like battling with, you know, monsters and then some very different ones and somebody online after i posted some pictures of it they said the, the starter scenario is the worst scenario it's it's tough and it's not fun and the rest of them are a lot more exciting so i had a pretty good time with the first scenario i'd be interested to explore the other scenarios i mean li- listen if somebody's like hey i really want to play a competitive game or a cooperative game i'd t- pick this over like pandemic but i wouldn't pick it over viticulture world or like Orleans invasion which they're both cooperative Euro games; those worked a little bit better. Where I felt like every player had a little bit more agency. This one, I just didn't. It didn't make sense why you were distributing your workers together. It just wasn't fun to have to to puzzle that out. I think, but but otherwise, really cool game. Really really fun theme on it. All right, well, cool. That will wrap up this episode of Board Game Hot Takes. Except we somehow keep getting great reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to read a couple of those. This week, Chris already alluded to one. He spoiled it a little bit. Uh, but I'll start with the first review that came in this week on Apple Podcasts. By the way, if you are a listener of the show, you should rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't listen to us on Apple Podcasts, you should still create an Apple account and go leave a, a rating and review for us because it does help more people find the show and it's fun to read these on there every week. So thanks to all of you that have done that already. The first review that came in was from T. Daning over on Apple Podcasts, and this is Tom Danning, by the way, I I interact with him regularly on Facebook, and um, love love chatting with him on our Facebook group over there. The headline was Friendly Relaxed Conversations About Games, and he gave us a five-star review. These guys just have a nice way about them. They voice their opinions honestly and fairly in a pleasant, easygoing manner without hyperbole. So many gaming podcasters feel the need to create this morning zoo radio DJ vibe with manic personalities hooting and hollering into the microphone. That's an immediate turnoff for me. The BGHT crew does it right. That's why they got my golden geek vote for best podcast this year. Sorry, it wasn't enough, guys. I won't name my favorite host here, but if he lets me win at Arc Nova again on BGA, I might be swayed. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. I, I'm out of the running for that one. <laughs> that was a super
2: nice compliment because I hate morning radio. I'm an NPR listener all the way. So that resonated with me. Thank you. <laughs> we are the NPR level of
0: uh, energy of uh, board game podcasts.
1: <laughs> Couldn't agree more with your
0: assessment of our personalities on air. <laughs> ding,
2: ding, ding. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, so thank you so much, Tom. Anyway, it was it was a great game of uh, Arc Nova, and uh, I promise I'm never going to let you beat me again. So I'll, we'll just have to keep the your favorite host to yourself. So the, the second review we got in this week was from Brian is a Viper. The headline was the best board game podcast hands down, and we got a five-star review. I came across this show several months ago quite by accident. I was looking for reviews of some board games that had caught my eye, but I knew nothing about. I listened to the review of Red Rising, bought the game, loved it, and I have kept coming back for more ever since. The key is the fact that Tim, Chris, and Adam are friends, not just co-hosts. They're critical of the games they play, but in the way that those of us who are just fans of board games are critical, not from the perspective of a designer or a publisher or someone who plays competitively. Those things may seem small, but they make a huge difference and make this particular board game podcast feel like no other I've listened to. And finally, since everything is apparently a competition in this hobby, although I respect each host for what they bring to the show, Chris, for his amazing ability to pair a board game with a cocktail and his near flawless record of sharing opinions on particular games as me, is my personal favorite host. Finally scoring a point in the face of the recent surge for Tim and Adam. Thanks for all of you. My wallet has suffered since I became a fan of the show, but the joy of the games I've bought because your recommendation has been well worth it. Thanks, Brian. That was lovely to hear. And I totally agree. I think Chris really is amazing at agreeing with your opinions on board games. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Well, that will wrap up this episode. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.